0: the North American distributor for composite development fly rods and accessories. 40 years of Kiwi ingenuity and in graphite technology, now available at cd-fishing.us or your local CD-USA dealer. Follow us on Instagram, YouTube, and Facebook. And remember to go fishing. Here's your host, the Carnops, and this is the February Room.
2: A famous author once wrote, I did not know that stories of life are often more like rivers than books. These words written by Norman McLean reflects his love and pain to Montana landscape and the people in them. But what would Norman's memoir look like if he were to write to my generation? of parenthood, loss of loved ones, in a Montana landscape that flows from rivers to the veins of people that pursue visions of dreams. Luckily, you don't have to wonder, Welcome to the podcast, Chris Dombrowski, and a huge congratulations to your book, The River You Touch. Hmm. And um, like I said, I'm going to try really hard in this podcast not to cry because this touched on so many different levels um, for dreamers and people who love, just love where you live. I don't think you have to necessarily love Missoula, but there's places that touch you in this earth that you're like, just runs through your veins.
3: Yeah. Thanks for that (laughs) wonderful intro, Lauren. That's really sweet of you to say. and. It's amazing to you draw a parallel to to McLean's great book, you know. Um I do you know it was interesting talking with you, texting with you in the last week about uh about this podcast and um you some people have said, Oh, I, I can't wait to talk to you because I feel close to your family after having read this book and um when I when I wrote it i really wrote it for people like us who have inhabited a place um despite the difficulties uh, um, but who have kind of seen the landscape as a character you know in their lives and basically begun interacting with it on the deepest levels and and some of some of us you know are fortunate enough to carve out lives others are you know, taken in tragedy by the landscape, um, and others are, are kind of spit out by it, if you will. But yeah, um, but yeah, it's um, it's fun to be launching this book in the West, and to to know that it uh, to hear anyway from early readers that it's hitting uh, striking a chord with other readers in this landscape.
2: Oh my gosh. I'm, I'm sure Justin's gonna, I was like, you need to read this book right away. Cause I'm like, but as soon as um, as soon as I'm done talking with you, I'm like, you can't rip off my little notes here. Yeah. <laughs> Actually I kind of want him to like go through and like, this is what meant, what it meant to mm-hmm. me, you know, like mm-hmm. writing these little messages. If you could, Chris, maybe kind of get a little synopsis about, I mean, we've kind of basically talked about the Montana landscape, but this is really about you and your family and Kind of go through a synopsis of what this book is sure. about. Sure,
3: yeah. Um, well, I would say too. It's it's about it's about you and your family. It's about <laughs> person B and their family as well. And and um, you know, to draw a line back to the McLean reference, I was talking with someone the other night about um, what a book what an authentic book about the West requires in terms of engagement right now. So um, when we look at this historical moment, um, what do we have to pay attention to for a book to be valid and timely? And, you know, the first of those things I think is history. And so setting a, a character, I, I'll say the narrator um, because I definitely differentiate even in creative nonfiction between Chris Dombrowski, who drove his kids to school today, and Chris Dombrowski, who who wrote this book, because they're two different uh, entities, I guess you could say. Uh, but setting a character in this landscape and making that character attentive to history, so um, aware of uh, the kind of travesties of um, of colonialism and um, what happened to the indigenous populations um, that were here before us, Um, the travesties that we've uh, enacted on the landscape. All of these things um, are kind of at the forefront of of this imagination anyway. Right. Um, I think at the beginning of the book in the foreword, I say, I wanted to write a love song to the rivers I've guided on for, for almost a quarter century. And a friend of mine, a musician, Jeffrey Foucault said, You know every love song succeeds on the element of doubt so i began to examine like what what were those elements of doubt in my own uh in my own mind uh and and obviously the the first one was as a parent like um to bring a child into the world is um it's a dangerous act right it's a it's a courageous thing to do um if you're doing it mindfully um, and if you're doing it with purpose, um, uh, and it's also one that makes you f- look a little differently at the world, you know, like the question, is it right to bring a child into this, into this world, you know, was one that was at the forefront of my mind when we, um, uh, thought of talked Mary and I talked about having kids, which would have been, uh, you know, 19 years ago, our son, Luca is 18 now. So, um. So that was, you know, kind of at the forefront uh, of the book. Um, and then coming to this, coming to terms with this idea, um, what a mindful, sustainable inhabitants of this small planet looks like, uh, in this day and age. And I, and I looked around Missoula and I thought there are so many answers to that question here in this community. So many people living, um, Forsaking career for community, right? Forsaking. So well the, said the traditional path for, um, for love of place. And, um, you know, obviously that l- with love of place comes the knowledge that our love of place sometimes affects that place negatively. Right. So, right. um, trying to pull all of that, um, all of that stuff, um, uh, into kind of the the forefront or the send up of the book, and and then finding myself at um, uh, at a moment in time when I began composing the book or when I when I actually f- was finishing it, um, on the heels of well whatever we want to call them three or four rough years, um, in the in this country right, right, um, where I felt um myself at a low point in terms of um. <sighs> Direction and um, and all all that all that good stuff right faith I think is probably a good a good word to throw out there um, and then realizing that the the lives that our children were leading or had led up to that point were direct conduits back into that sense of wonder um, and discovery that had originally pulled me westward right. So, right. um, you, you know, on the, um, on the, on the surface level, this book is, um, it's a book about my life guiding for the last 25 years on the rivers of Western Montana, but, but on, um, at the, the kind of soul level and the, and the, um, existential core of it, it's a book about being, um, reconnected, uh, on the deepest level to, um, to the to the natural world and and that, and that happening via um the w- wonder that our children exhibit
2: oh you <clears throat> you do it i mean even in the book you write that you need to speak of a place of authenticity and not only do you speak of a place of authenticity you speak of a place of vulnerability uh-huh, uh-huh. i couldn't the the fact that um growing uh, ha- raising children in this community I always look around, I'm like, how are you doing this? Like, is anybody else, but nobody says it. Like everyone just kind of, we all kind of go through it and I'll Google like, how much does the average <laughs> Missoulian make in Montana? Right. Cause, and then I'm like, was anybody else not doing, like, how is, how is everyone making it? And. But the fact that you are speaking from a place of vulnerability, and the appreciation of the nature around you just amazes me. And I was hoping if you could, because I, I I don't want to you know I don't want to share the entire book. Oh, I want to no, give people yeah. tidbits. But if there was a chapter that maybe we could read a story from your book, sure, because it's so do you beautiful. Have in mind? That you, oh gosh, yeah. you know, there's so. Do you, <laughs> you pick. You really? I think that's a great idea. Okay, there's so many ones. There's some that. um the guiding of the people that you've lost has oh, been, yeah. I don't know how you could write, you know, that's another, maybe we should read one of those. Yeah. Um, do you, do you like all my post
3: notes? I love it. That's great.
2: <laughs> you know, and also the thing that you were just talking about, um, how you were like a writer and a parent but you, you kind of reference McLean, two words, two worlds of a physical and a written world. And that was yeah. kind of when you said that, I was like, oh, that's, that's Chris. Oh, yeah. Great. There
3: was a, speaking of, um, speaking of interviews about books, there's a wonderful old American audio prose library recording. Interviewer is Kay Bonetti and Norman McLean is the the subject mm-hmm. of the interview. Um, I got this at the Michigan state public library when I was a senior in high school. Cause I was giving my, I was writing my senior paper on mclean and at the time there there had been no movie made of a river runs through it so there were about four sources there was, <laughs> there was the book a river runs through it there was um one interview by a guy named pete dexter who i would later meet in esquire magazine called the old man and the river uh with a classic picture of mclean in a boat on Sealy lake um <laughs> And there was this, this audio interview, and I got a recording of it, um, and he says, Benetti asks him, what was it like going between the University of Chicago, where he was a Shakespeare professor, and, and then the wilds of Montana, living at Sealy Lake in the summers or whatever um, every year? And he said, it was a recipe for schizophrenia, but I was determined not to let it happen. <laughs> 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 and I've always kind of taken that, um, as a cue, like going back and forth between the rivers in the summer and, and teaching or, or writing in the, in the winter. Like, um, it is uh, this recipe for kind of, um, fragmented life, but we know that's our lives aren't fragmented. I mean, we, we want to compartmentalize cause it makes it easy to say like, okay, right now I'm doing this. I'm recording a podcast with Lauren, but, um, there's, there's way more fluidity and and through line to everything. So
2: um, that's really well said. I mean, I didn't really think about life that way, but I'm also not a creative (laughs) writer. So now I'm gonna, I'm going to look at that totally differently, which is also, you know, we could even talk about, oh gosh. Yeah. But I'll read anything you, you oh man, are you sure? Of course. Yes. Yeah. Man, that Spurgeon story is so... I can't look at Lolo Peak yeah, the same way I anymore. I, every time I drive now, I'm going to look at Lolo Peak differently. But maybe we should have the... I, I feel like that's something that the readers have to really sure. develop because you develop that relationship with you and Spurgeon. Yeah. Sorry. That was so beautiful. Yeah. And I also didn't know that Lolo Peak is still growing. It no is. No clue. Yeah. I learned so much more in this yeah. book. And that's what's so cool about it is that you kind of like... When you read a book and you're like... I feel a little bit smarter. Um, oh, and then I... I okay. Let's, oh, gosh. Should we do Peg? Yeah, I thought that one was I, such I, a... I was hoping thing. you'd ask for that. Yeah. I'm like, choke what tears. What page is that? That is page um, 103. Okay. But there's like so many different Peg stories. So well, why don't you choose which one you like about your story with Peg? But um, This actually
3: ties in pretty well to what we were just talking about. Um, and I just got to see Peg last weekend. Um, I was um in michigan reading at the harbor springs festival of the book and her son she's she's been on chemo for the last um which is an interesting postscript to to all of this but um yeah so she wasn't able to come out this summer and fish she's been on chemo for the last uh several months and uh her son brought her up uh, to see me read, and and um, I, I I almost read this passage, but I couldn't. I knew I wouldn't be able to make it through. So yeah, let's um, read.
2: Uh, let maybe okay. uh, yeah. Where, which one, which one are you starting? I'll just at?
3: start on like one hundred ish. Yeah, um,
2: yeah. Let's uh, let's do okay. it. And I'll
3: I'll skip around and get to Peg. I've never considered guiding an escape from the real world so much as a way to wrap myself in life's entire cloth. A means of resolving the manyness that seems a prerequisite of postmodern existence. Of course, I didn't start out thinking that way. I simply enjoyed fishing and revered the locations my quarry inhabited. I ignored the repeated warnings of an early mentor. Becoming a guide might just cause you to hate fishing. Reasoning that the adults I knew weren't utterly in love with their jobs either, the authority figures on which I was around which i was reared worked as insurance brokers accountants realtors salesmen secretaries in other words there didn't exist in my suburban milieu some fast track to adventurous outdoor based occupations wasn't it better to take a chance and find out if you might eventually hate something i wondered than embark on a path you already disliked this crisp late morning under a sheaf of blue sky I'm rowing my longest-standing client, Peg, down the Clark Fork, just upstream from the Alberton Gorge. An ebullient, retired music teacher, Peg first fished with me in the company of her then-husband, George, the aforementioned mentor who was a decorated Korean War hero and Michigan District Court judge before he retired to take up guiding and river conservation in northern Michigan. When I moved to Montana in the mid-90s and began to guide, they booked my services for a week and brought as their guest George's brother and sister-in-law. The Alexanders made a ribald quartet, equally dedicated to the art of angling and irreverent in respect to its often annoying decorum, and plans were quickly formed to reconvene the following summer. So I'll fast forward just a little. George passes away that summer, uh, or that winter rather, in a uh, in surprising fashion. He goes in for double knee surgery
1: mm-hmm.
3: and catches pneumonia and dies. And then, uh, much to my surprise, Peg arrives the following August with with her brother-in-law George's brother Chick and sister-in-law Mackie, who, as it turns out, has has, has cancer and is um, bouncing between. Twin Bridges and Bozeman to get chemo treatments twice a week so that Ah. she could keep uh, fishing. Um, I love that. I love that character of Mackie. Um, At one point I asked her if she'll, um, you know, if she needs a little help on the river. um, And she, um, uh, she gives, she gives me this look like, um, (laughs) you know, I'm 75 years old standing in a river. (laughs) I've just had two chemo treatments this week. Do I look like I need any help from anyone, you know? Uh, yes. Um, and, um, and then Mackie passes away mm. and, um, and then, and Chuck and, uh, uh, and then, and then Chuck and Peg actually get together. So brother-in-law and, um,
2: kind of beautiful. Yeah.
3: Um, end up together. And, and then um, I'll, I'll pick up um, with, with, yeah, with Chuck and Peg. This might be a little too long. But
2: no, I'm no, sure. no. Uh, this is a podcast. Okay, so, <laughs> They're here yeah, to listen to you. That's <laughs> great. Um,
3: Chuck had a, this poetic way of saying just about everything. So he's asking me uh, about when Mary and I were going to have kids. Mm-hmm. Uh, so just when do you and Mary plan to start pitching squealers? That was his phrase. <laughs> uh, was a question Chick often asked, and one I recall with a tinge of melancholy, as I ease the boat down a slow bank draped in grass, there's seed heads tanned and hanging heavy. Um, yeah, did I say that, that Chuck has passed away at this point? I um, m- I don't know no. that I did or if it pops up in this... Um,
2: like he, he does I mean he.
3: yeah so so basically to to rewind peg is finally fit peg is basically i everyone at this <sighs> point and she's mm-hmm. and now she's fishing alone so we're on the river together and i'm recalling this thing that chuck might have said when yes. did you guys start uh plan to start pitching squealers i pull hard on the oars feel the current tension seed to the cut of the chine the boat moves upstream as if greased i'm giving peg the best shots possible At the scant, shady lies, but since launching the boat, we've gone an hour without a fish. A horse collar I ignored during my elegiac mental hiatus, but one that currently has me growing anxious. As the sun ascends and spills its syrupy glare across the water, the difficulty level of our fishing will only increase as our imitations become more obvious to the discerning trout. The risers we've located have been sipping on trichos, tiny black-bodied mayflies with translucent wings that rest spent upon the water, dead still, not twitching like many aquatic insects do. Large trout seek out these imagos, a dozen of which would cover a dime in the thin, slick shallows where angling mistakes are magnified. I tell Peg she's placing the fly at all the right angles, that not even her guide could deliver a cleaner presentation but I know my encourage encouragements offer her little recompense. She has always taken personally what the river gives or doesn't. I try to la- laud her for her courageous spirit for making this solo jaunt West. So soon after chicks passing rather a hedge toward the gesture, but come up with half a consolation. Mercifully, she changes the subject to our fishing prospects, concluding that she's, been to enough funerals in the past year to last a while and is still here so far as she can tell currently here is a table flat calm before the rapids reach that harbors a decent population of rainbow trout a reductive name for a fish to say the least where i more were i a more inventive naturalist i might forego the accepted moniker derived from the typical spectrum of colors that adorns the species gill plates and give each rainbow a more befitting name Cosmetically speaking, there are few spectacles in, freshwater ang- in the freshwater angling world quite as striking as the star-white belly of an otherwise weed-colored fish that frequents the shallow sloughs along the Bitterroot, or the polished apple-red cheek of its current fighting cousin. The nose of a Clark Fork rainbow feeding on mayfly duns at last light in November glows like the underside of a polished spoon. While the milk-blue back of a Blackfoot rainbow caught in June, when the river runs high, reminds me of a shade Rothko invented for one of his sparest canvases. Their temperaments differ, too. Blackfoot rainbows fight the hardest. Norman Maclean asserted that only grizzly bears were more ornery. A 20-inch chrome-nosed Clark Fork Hen hooked on light tippet will give the angler a few token headshakes before returning to the precise center of the river and banking for the Puget Sound. Locals are fond of saying that a 16-inch brick-shaped Bitterroot rainbow will, quote, give you your money's worth, but I think such efficient creatures have earned their divestment from our convoluted economic web. Unlike other western states, Montana doesn't stock its rivers with hatchery-bred trout, relying instead on habitat improvements to curate increased survival rates in fisheries. So, any rainbow trout caught on the Clark Fork is a wild one, a survivor-like peg. All of which is to say, there's no such thing as an average rainbow trout. But if there were, it would be a 14-incher, aged three years, and weighing roughly one pound, what guides often call a cook cookie cutter fish, the likes of which Peg has caught hundreds. So I'm a bit stymied when, after hooking and playing such a specimen to net, she begins to gawk. At first, I take her muteness as base level relief that a fish has finally come to the boat. But when she raises the dripping rainbow from the water with her long arthritic fingers, her fuchsia-painted nails accenting its cheek, she begins to gasp then folds over at her torso as if the fish were solid ore, as if its weight were drawing her into the river. As she unhooks it, her eyes moisten. This is the last place we fished together while Chick was still, while he was well, she says, the exact spot. I remember leaning against that boulder while he waited to the drop-off. A big fish was feeding on some stage of mayfly he couldn't match. He dug through every box in his vest, changed a dozen flies, muttering himself, muttering to himself the whole time. Completely entertained, just like a dog with a ball. I think he liked it that way more than if he'd fooled the fish. Underwater, Peg slackens her grip, and the revived trout drops through the pool and out of sight. I've thought of this place all year, not every day, but a lot of days. This place, she points to the bank. I know that boulder better than my pillow. Do you know what he told me that evening before he went back to the boat? I shake my head. He said, if I kick over dead tonight and wake up somewhere tomorrow, it had better be here.
2: Oh my gosh. I'm like already tearing up. I'm trying not to because, you know, I think in life you just kind of realize like, there's just going to be tragedy. You can't go through life without a little bit of, uh, you know, hardship. And so, anyways, just the way that you develop these characters is so... I mean, they're characters, but they're real people, sure. which is so interesting to me. And your family and, like, mm-hmm. these... I have this picture of Mary. And, like, you know, sometimes you kind of, like, image... you. I've never met Mary, but I, in my mind, I'm going to see Mary. I'm like, oh, this is... I built this character in my head and Lily and Luca and Mary, like yeah. all these characters are in my head and I, but these are real people and these are real, you know, real things that happen and yeah. it just, it, it, it blows my mind. And what I really appreciate about your book, Chris, is as I was reading it, you know, you'll kind of, you start your guiding day, you're, you're, the first time you start guiding and you reference the confluence. And as mm-hmm, I kind of mm-hmm. listen to your story, you really go back, you'll take a pause and re- reference to different parts of the water from midstream to, um, the banks of the river crumbling down and certain aspects of your life were these moments that you've always noticed in your life when these big changes happen or like, how did, how did you yeah. I- I integrate the no, w-
3: river? That's, I think the beauty of, um, of writing a book, right? right. I mean, um, First of all, I love that you, um, that you loved the characters in the book. Uh, obviously, I'm, I'm close to them, but um, it was probably more difficult to construct them given that I spend so much real time around them, right? Right. Uh, right? And so constructing them authentically was a challenge. But I also became obsessed with this idea that, you know, memoir doesn't have to be about, like some mass tragedy or right. um, you know, I, I don't want to like point to a specific book, but um, so I'm trying to avoid <laughs> what my brain is thinking <laughs> about, but you know um, if you can awaken in the familiar and discover it strange, you need never leave home. That's a quote from the poet Ted Coozer. And I thought about that a lot with, you know, the lives of our children. They're so feral, right? And they're so like the wilderness of parenting, in the that's rooted in the domestic takes us to such, I mean, we know you just can never imagine, right. The, um, the moments of joy, the moments of difficulty of near tragedy of, of whatever that the case might be. So that was the impetus for um, pairing the domestic with the, the natural world with, with the rivers. Um, The river, of course, as a metaphor though, um, serves, a number of roles in the book. Um, One, of course, is time. Um, The Da Vinci quote that the title comes from, in rivers, the water that you touch is the last of what is past and the first of that which is to come. So with present time, you know, um, that's what we crave, right? Is that moment of direct contact that awakens us to being here, Right. Um, in that physical world. So on a real kind of existential philosophical level, that's where that title came from. But the the river, um, I think, if you think of the Clark Fork, for instance, right, we know that the upper reaches have been completely desecrated by mining, right? right. And so um, the upper reaches of the river Began to serve metaphorically for like those parts of previous generations of my own life that had, you know, been uh, terrorized by drugs and alcohol or or abuse or um, abandonment or whatever. And so like how a river can be reinvigorated as it's met. By springs, by other rivers by as you back this is back to your question yeah. of like confluence, right um that was a a guiding metaphor for me, and, and it took me a while to kind of um understand that I would have to get at that metaphor via like physical scenes right yeah. i couldn't just ponder it, i couldn't just um uh, muse on it i had to um and act those right. right. Those sensations. And then later in the book, you know, a friend says, In a life properly lived, you're a river. Um which I think means that um there are these moments in life where things seem completely serene and we're gliding along, right? <laughs> and then there are these steep drop offs where we're just plunging through rapids barely um able to to kind of catch our breath and and then like coming to terms with the fact that we we truly begin at a completely different point than we tend to think of like right we don't begin when we're born right no we begin way (laughs) way before that and and then we don't um we don't end where we think we end, right? So right. Um, anyway, it's it was it's fun to be overtaken by the narrative, which is what <sighs> happens when you're writing, I think, is um, you have a certain level of, or the, the illusion of control, and then um, you kind of get swept up into this period of yeah. magical thinking where everything is just... Pouring in and and cohering, and then of course there's the editing, which we don't need to talk.
2: About. <laughs> oh, trust me, I I know you editing. Know, right, exactly. <laughs> no one likes my music. Yes, I can't please yes. anyone with my music. Right. I'm like, never mind. I'm not going to even listen to <laughs> you. I'm going to do what I like. Yeah. but yeah, right. that. I mean, I just I absolutely love that metaphor as you know the river and this natural and you know also w- what I really like about the theme is we talk a lot about food, like food. Mm. And then, I mean, I was like, I was like told Justin, like, are we going to get invited to Thanksgiving? Because (laughs) I want to get invited to Thanksgiving. I I feel like our, our
3: Thanksgivings have been deteriorating over, over the years, but that was a great, I mean, we have so many great Thanksgivings. Um, You know, I think um, we still have (laughs) had big feasts, but um, you know, Thanksgiving is that wonderful opportunity to, I think of it as a way of saying thanks to the food, you know, that we've taken. Yes. Um, And, and so obviously we, we try to be grateful if we're having elk tacos, like on a normal Tuesday night, but to really say, okay, like this is, um, you know, we're gonna do elk shanks tonight and really celebrate um really celebrate that or um to break out the best recipes also for the food poco, and, and didn't yeah, you? Exactly, I was like right? oh my gosh. Um and that um to just celebrate it and, and yeah. celebrate our connection to the to the food and um I mean you can see in this book uh me kind of growing into that mindset being and being um mentored by Yes, my friends and you know, people. Um,
2: because you didn't grow into the hunting. It came when you came here. Yeah.
3: I, I didn't, I didn't grow up hunting at all. Um, actually strangely enough, the the first person who ever took me hunting was Steve Ranella when we were in grad school. Um, yeah, <laughs> and it, we were, we went duck hunting together and, um, and then I remember like a week later he said, okay, now you have to come over for dinner. And he had cooked, he invited Mary and me over and he had a, a girlfriend at the time. And we had duck LaRange, you know, that he had cooked. And I was like, you know, my head was blown off. I was like, you're kidding me. Like this thing was flying around a week ago and we shot it. And then you, you showed me how to clean it or whatever, but then you made it into this. Oh my God. So, um, yeah, you know, being mentored by people and, and also, um, um, you know the idea that we we do share our food around here. I, I have a friend that um, I trade elk for um, black cod, halibut, and salmon. You know, caught wild in Alaska, and not we're not obviously divested from the, the, we, the economic right. shitstorm that is American <laughs> capitalism. But it's nice to to have moments of of like hey, here, take this food. Oh, you take this.
2: Oh, absolutely. It does make you because you do reference a lot about like the morel hunting. Mm -hmm. And you know, we've, we've so done that. And I think where I appreciate it, because I didn't grow up with a hunting family Mm -hmm. at all. I grew up in Colorado. And so Justin has been my huge mentor. And Mm -hmm. I didn't make I didn't realize how much I appreciated my food and like cleaning my plate, because I don't want to waste something Mm -hmm. that I've harvested and also something that at one point was part of this landscape, like to see something that you've taken away, you're like, I'm not going to let that life just be because of nothing. Right. Right. You know, and you do such a great job. I mean, talking about this land and the same thing, cause I didn't grow up in Missoula. I wasn't born and raised here. And sometimes I feel like I've been here since two, I went to the university of Montana mm-hmm. in 2004 and I still feel like I'm an outsider. Right. Like, but my kids have been born here. So I'm like, my kids, born and raised in Missoula, but I still feel like I'm not 100% like yeah. a hundred percent like, but it's funny how much, I don't know, this, <laughs> this place that sometimes doesn't seem to like kind of, sometimes it feels like it's going to try and kick you out. Right. Like, <laughs> yeah, it sure does. I know <laughs> it's like, get your stuff and pack your, mm-hmm. and so it was really wonderful to have somebody else explain the way that you did with such great words. I told Justin this, I was like, I sometimes consider myself a really fast reader. Like I can read a book really fast. And I was like, in this book, in the most beautiful way, the way that you've written these words is almost like poetic in a way that it was with intention. Mm -hmm. You weren't trying to get through a sentence. You were trying to like reach into the sentence. So I think, and I don't know where exactly I'm going with this, but those words really spoke to me.
3: I love that. I mean, So I think, um, (laughs) so I had an old friend who used to say, um, the world speaks to us and we speak back as writers. We speak back, you know, and with what type of language are we speaking back? I I wanted this book to, I believe that direct contact with the physical world is potentially transformative, right? um, to a, to a mind, to a body. We're talking about food, right? We know. Um, and I wanted to create as many sentences that enacted as closely as possible, what that direct contact was like, you know, whether it was, um, enacting the feeling of rowing a boat or, um, you know, digging into the, guts of a deer you are cleaning. Um, yeah. because I think we've gotten to this point in society where, um, I mean, we know we're ruled by our screens and all that, but, um, we think too much. We talk too much. We, um, we argue too much. We think that simply if we just get the language right, um, in, in the blabber on TV, that all the problems will go away. But, um, I don't, I think only place that we're going to find common ground is in the physical world, in the natural world, where um, regardless of whatever your political disposition, you can still find yourself moved to the point of, um, of being shaken or changed out of your, you know, distracted mindset into, wait, this is where I am right here. Um, and, and without that. We don't fall in love with a place. And if we don't fall in love with it, we don't protect it, right? We lose our public land. We lose our clean rivers that not only do not only do we love those clean rivers, but we make our living off of them, right? A hundred percent. And while we're making our living off of them, we bring in billions of dollars of tourism to the state so that, you know, our beloved Scotty's table can stay open in the right. winter or, or whatever the case might be. Um, uh, I'm ranting a little bit here, but- back to the idea of of the sentences, you know, taking care with them so that, um, the hope anyway was that whoever would encounter those sentences would, would also encounter the physical world
2: as closely as possible. Without a doubt. I think like after reading this book, I like went for a hike and I just spread my fingers to like feel the wind. I was like, I'm going to just appreciate this. Like It just, it just moved my entire, like, Mm. and, and even though, like, I know we've, it's about a guide and it's about Mm. a family and it's about hardship and it's like, but I feel anyone who can pick up this book can relate to their place. And, um, I've, I've referenced this book before and it's, it's a kid's book. It's called Places of Power. And it's basically saying that, um, we all need to have this place, whether it's, the outside or the world where for some reason this one place like feels like you are connected Mm -hmm. with yourself and the world and i think for everybody needs to have a place like that if you have not found a place like that you need to explore it and this book gives you reason to Mm -hmm. why you need to explore these places because if you don't You don't become advocates Mm -hmm. for things that you love. And that's not just like rivers or nature, but like you need to be advocates for anything that you become passionate about. And so, um, that is just really well said. I I was curious, you, you do explore such really intimate moments and also scary moments Mm -hmm. within you and Mary's life. Mm -hmm. How did Mary feel about (laughs) some of these, like, exposures. Cause as a parent, I feel constantly judged. I feel mm. constantly like I'm not doing some things right. And it's sometimes always in my head. So to have those spelled out and like, oh, I feel like relief. I'm like, Oh gosh, we're all in it together. Mm-hmm. But how did Mary?
3: Well, w- that's a great question. And, I mean, she read everything in drafts before. Um, <laughs> and, 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 and trust me, I was way more nervous to hear what she had to say about things than I was my editor's opinions, you know, of course. um, and she, I think really early on just fell in love with the narrative. And, um, I think it, it, you know, it may help that she's, um, she's kind of the heroine in the book. You know, she's definitely the hero in the book. But, oh, she's so beautiful. Um, yeah. Like, and
2: I'm like, I'm going to see Mary and probably start crying. Like, oh, Mary, so sweet. <laughs>
3: but you're right. There's, there's a ton of moments that are vulnerable. And, um, I think for whatever reason, I long ago as a writer, just stopped thinking of myself as synonymous with that narrative. I, um, and, and you, I mean, you can either buy that or not. Some people buy it. Some people don't, but, um, I get this question a lot often in terms of, of poems. Um, and I, and I, think back to an old quote, vulnerability is a writer's best defense. Why do I naturally reject this? That's the the quote, you know? Um, and I think there's some freedom in vulnerability, right? There's some freedom in, um, accepting your own imperfections, accepting your own mistakes, accepting your own, um, here I am. I know what I know which is a lot less than what I don't know. Right. And so, um, this idea of vulnerability, I mean, it's one thing to have it as a writer, but then to kind of expose it in your, your beloveds or your character. Yeah. So, you know, it was, it was liberating for me to, for, to have Mary kind of get on board with that. And I think, um, I think it's actually been liberating for her too, to just say, you know, um, these are the moments in life that happen to us. Right. Right. Um, and I don't know. You'd have to ask her. You can, we can have a little post I can't script, wait you know? um, <laughs> with Asobuko, yeah, all we the thing. I'll I'd bring the grouse. Yes.
2: <laughs> I'm like yeah. Mary. I was like, I've so been, you know, some of my biggest moments is like talking to like other moms and being like, so totally forgot to pick up my kid yesterday. <laughs> <laughs> love it. I know. I know. And also really scary moments, you know, yes. like you have life scary moments and, I sometimes don't even like to talk about it. You I know? don't either.
3: Yeah. I'm I like, oh, either. it didn't
2: happen. But mm-hmm. you know, like for example, you had like this and I, I don't, but a really scary moment with one of your kids that
1: mm-hmm. could
2: have been the change. It mm-hmm. could have changed your mm-hmm. life, right? You're like this. Mm-hmm. And it's funny because you talk about this one instance where something bad's about to happen and all these bad thoughts come in your head. Mm-hmm. Like, what are we, we going to do? And it does happen as a parent like that, right? You're like, if this happened, This is what, what am I going to do? How am I going to survive this? And sure enough, like one time, Jess and I were on the river and we were with the kids and Odessa was like two. And I was in the front with Sawyer trying to, you know, teach him, get him his Mm -hmm. cast. And all of a sudden, um, Justin was, um, grabbing a fly box and we look up and the river, it it, it was an easy Mm -hmm. float. Mm -hmm. Like I said, easy float on the right side was just some really huge waves. And I look back, and I was like, "Okay, guys, hold on. Odessa is asleep on the chair, not holding on to anything. Just yeah, yeah. Just <laughs> with the peanut butter and jelly. I will never forget uh-huh. this. And I was like, sort duck down because they're like really sure. rolling ones. And I just remember, it was like, Justin, uh-huh, <laughs> like, wow. Uh-huh. And we, you know, at the very end, we get done. F- we get it was like right there was a the boat ramp, right? And I was like, Justin, okay, I would like go through a million, I'm like, so, right. Justin. She had her life jacket on, but if, if she had fallen, she yes, didn't. Yeah, I was like, yeah. you would have grabbed her. Right. And like nothing bad would have happened. Like I was like, oh, oh, and if she did go down, I could have gone in there and I've nothing bad would have happened. Right. Like, it, right, you know, right, always right. doing these scenarios, like if it was to happen in the worst way, yeah. we would have been okay. Right. 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 Like worst case scenario, we would have made it fine. Like, but it's just one of those moments. And you describe those moments so much better than the way that I'm just talking. And, so, and those words that are concrete and um, what are concrete feelings as we mm-hmm. go through life as parents. Um, how do you revisit those moments in writing mm-hmm. specifically and not trying to get through? Like I, mm-hmm. you know, you just want to get through those moments. You're like, I don't want to revisit those moments. I want to get through this day and yeah. just say all is good. I mean, I don't,
3: it's funny. Um, yeah. There are a couple in the book for sure. Um one, the one with Lily um, is one I think about often um, and I, and I always, you know, whenever, whenever I think about it, I, I'm immediately grateful and I, I knock on wood cause I'm superstitious and you know <laughs> um, but I think as you are saying, these type of events are kind of part and parcel of, of being a parent. Right. And we, we, we get so near to these things that we, we don't even want to think about. Right. Um, so I wrote that, that scene with Lily late in the book. Yeah. I wrote many years ago and it was an essay as an essay that appeared in a, um, in a magazine called the sun. And, um, I probably received more, um, letters from readers about that than i've i've received about any other individual piece and everyone that wrote said this was such a liberating piece for me to read you know something similar happened to me or um uh or something you know something worse happened to me but to read this was was healing you know um and so i mean that's the writer's job in essence to to go into those places emotionally that Um, We want to avoid right Right. Um, and I think delving them on the parental level, but also on my own like individual kind of psychological level. um, uh, It's no fun, but the book would be less true if those scenes and, uh, and chapters didn't exist, I think.
2: Oh, without a doubt. I mean, without a doubt, if you didn't have this, like, like you said, um, if you didn't have this moment of like why this landscape is really important mm-hmm. to you and the family and these people who are in it, it wouldn't be real. Yeah. If those hardships, <laughs> I guess, isn't that strange? Why is the human, like, why is life have to be like, it doesn't feel real unless it's hard. Yeah. Yeah.
3: <laughs> right. It's, I mean, it's not
2: worth it if it's not
3: No, coming I feel, on the other side. Yeah. Um, there's this, you know unspeakable balance and things it's it's to steal a phrase from mclean like it's beautiful and it's brutal um and i think uh this book aims to encapsulate that truth right i mean with the the spurgeon story and the uh and peg's saga of of um outliving her her clan you know um uh, it's brutal yeah um
2: but it's just it's I mean, but we get we we have these other things that are tangibly good,
1: yes, and yes. that's
2: what's so great is like there's so many good, good things and beautiful things, and maybe that's because of the places that drives you Right. Yes. yeah
3: the place resurrects us over and over again. The landscape is um you know, it's this door of deliverance through from from depression or from uh you know, from hardship or, or, or whatever the case might be, you know, um, this book is like 315 pages. And there was a, um, there was a time, there was a time that it was longer. Uh, and my editor made a really wise suggestion. He said, you know, toward, toward the end of the book here, you're, you're delving some of your own mental discordancies, right? Um, which were true I, we were in Michigan, we were broke i was I was <laughs> depressed um probably clinically, and um I was just trying to survive you know um and i I probably dug a little deeper into that hole than I needed for the narrative um and he said, I wonder if you peel back like a chapter and a half here if the reader won 't feel the uplifting parts of the book um, more strongly, you know, and and that was, I think because he's, he said, you know, ultimately this is a book about hope. This is a, um, this is a story that is, um, is going to carry people through, through difficult times. And he said, not, not that you haven't experienced what you're depicting here, but um, in terms of, you know, well, you're an editor in terms of what the book, needs what what it's dictating it's you know i have my own story but this book is its own story right the book takes on a life of its own and it begins to say um for for my purposes i only need (laughs) this right right Uh, i don't need another 30 pages of um, you know, winter depression in, in <laughs> February in Michigan, which fe- February is 13 months long. In Hence
2: Michigan. the name of the podcast. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The, the February, February room. room right? yes. <laughs> We're trying to get through with stories. Yes. <laughs> We're just know. trying to make it through. Everyone always asks that, but it's interesting because you talk about Michigan and I loved, um, Oh, uh, you're in. Okay. I'm just kind of going back to uh, a quote that I really, I really, um, I thought was a really good story was, you're in Michigan and um, you are with uh, the, was it the other professor Mm -hmm. and the stone? Yeah. Yeah, The stone. Oh gosh. Where is it? It was funny. He's like, ask me, Oh, you were asking about how, um, if he's writing anymore, yeah, and he's yeah. like, let's look at that rock. I loved, yeah,
3: I can find that if you want. Oh,
2: I, I yeah. had it on here. Cause then I also, at the end of it, you're kind of debating whether you're going to move back. And I really like the metaphor of you taking that rock and throwing it mm-hmm. back into the water. And I was like, Oh, what a great way for those to connect. Let me see.
3: Yeah. He, um,
2: uh, let's see.
3: Yeah. Ralph says, um,
2: was in page
3: 251 yeah um, I says have you I say have you <laughs> been writing at all and he says I like to have written
2: yeah I'm weary yep. of
3: ambition junior you ought to ask the same question of a rock on the shoreline tonight ask it if it's been writing a rock has the proper amount of ambition
2: yeah and then you know and then on, on page 254 you know your steelhead fishing and Mm -hmm. you take a rock and you throw it into the water. And I was like, wow, this is where I feel like there's going to be a change. And I just, this whole book has like such metaphors as you kind of continue to read it. And as somebody who's married to a guide and I was like, he's got this great job. This is great. I'm sure Mary's like, we have three kids. Like, (laughs) what are you thinking? Right. I am like, you were so brave though. Like I find you such a... A hero in this book for being a dreamer and like because we could you could have just stayed there you could have just made that but would it it created not a good space for you to be in mm-hmm. and to recognize that I find yeah like a hero like ah well go Chris I mean
3: first I would say like I want to qualify and say you know what a privilege to be able to be in that spot to say okay I'm gonna I'm gonna turn down this steady job for. My soul's calling, if you will, right? I mean, that's a privileged position to be in, and I, I appreciate to no end you saying that. But I also think I do in the book recognize, like, you know, what a in, in some ways, <laughs> like, what a buffoon. Like, why can't I be happy here? You know, I'm. Oh, I, there's that scene where I'm overlooking yes. the lake, and and um, and then I end up hitting that grouse, you know, um, on yes. the way home, and um, but yeah, I mean, we. We know we, if we're listening, we know our soul's calling, right? Our vocation that comes from the Latin vocare to be called. Right. Um, And not only am I talking about my writerly vocation in here, but the vocation of being in this place via the rivers and my occupation as a guide, you know, we, I think I came to the realization that I had in a sense cast a lot of seeds in this landscape, Mary and I had right, and then we had um th- the roots had set in, but we had abandoned the trees before the fruit had kind of um, begun to blossom, you know or begun begun to come alive. And so that was the call like, okay, um, are you really able to say, to put this in your rear view and and just be be done with it? You know, I mean, even right now, um, I remember that scene of kind of thumbing the calluses on my hand and thinking like, oh, I'm becoming such a, uh, (laughs) you know, a desk (laughs) jockey, if you will. Um, So I don't know if I'm answering your question there or if we're on the same thread but i i do feel like um yeah we're just we're just convinced that by so many factors that living meaningfully and sustainably is unrealistic. Like that's what the world is trying to convince us It's basically trying to say, get on the wheel and do this thing. And at the end we'll probably spit you out, um, uh, with a modest retirement and, um, 10 years left on your mortgage. And, uh, if you got your soul at the end of it, good for <laughs> you, but you might not, you know? Yeah. Um, and so, um, I just kept looking at so many people, around Missoula and so many people in the West who had gone about it a different way and said, um, all right, we're going to, um, we're going to sacrifice a certain level of security for a certain level of freedom. Um, and we're fortunate to live in such a vibrant community here in Missoula where that's kind of the way of things. But as you know, if you, if you go, to Colorado or if you go back to Illinois, you know, where Mary's from. I mean her her brothers and sisters, uh she's the youngest of five. They think we live like on Mount Everest or something, you know. <laughs> I mean to them, right, living in that right. um in in suburbia or whatever is just is so monotonous that they think you, you mean you go down to the Creek and you swim every night? I can't believe this. You know, um, we took them to rattlesnake Creek to swim a couple summers ago when they were here and they went to Glacier, they went to Yellowstone. They went, you know, we, we took them on the river, whitewatering and, and fishing and all these things. And they said, I think our favorite part of the entire deal Going swimming with you guys in Rattlesnake Creek because because you get to do that every day because it's like a daily sacrament you know yeah in, and um anyway I'm rambling a little bit but um oh,
2: uh, no you're not this is just like going into the brain of this like beautiful brain child yeah. that came out with this Thank It's you. so awesome it is so great yeah you know it's funny because this book made me re love and appreciate. You know, cause it, you know, when Jess and I left Missoula and we went to Illinois and we were only there for two years and actually took, it took me to be pregnant to realize this is not where we wanted to live. Sure. Right. Like I was like, there's no way I do not want to raise, um, my kid, not that there's anything wrong with Illinois, nothing wrong <laughs> with Illinois. It's just not where we wanted to raise a kid mm-hmm. and we wanted to be part of the outdoors. We want yeah. to teach them fishing, hunting, like all these things that we just could not, do in Illinois and um I remember when I moved back I was like I promise I promise I will never complain about the weather mm-hmm. I will never mm-hmm. <laughs> I and and you said in your book when you came back I think you kissed the ground and I, I the same thing and then now I have a podcast called every yeah. complaining about the yeah. weather. So well, I have forgotten about, I it. I I forgot about it. it. Yeah.
3: It's awful. The weather here is awful in the winter. Thank God. I mean, all these people who are, you know, um, buying houses here for billions of dollars. Hopefully we have a miserable winter this year and they oh, all leave. And yeah, I mean, I, I mean, get in trouble for saying that. But, um, but yeah, I think, um,
2: I think if your intention here is to embrace what you have created in your book, this culture of Mm -hmm. like living on the land and appreciating it and the rivers and, and being part of that, like, I think that's great. What I don't, what we, I think as Missoulians or people who appreciate is that that's what it's about. And when you come in here, like, I would like a high rise because I want to see things higher and I want to. I want block
3: your view, (laughs) your little plebeian view of things, right? (laughs) Your your bungalow can no longer see Lolo Peak. Yeah. It's pathetic. And, and, and the fact that like, um, so many people are coming in and bringing their, I'll I'll call them politely, their mannerisms from these other places, you know, Mm -hmm. um, I'm not a big fan of that. Uh, Rick Bass and I were talking a year ago or so when the, when everything was, you know, bursting uh, yeah. growth wise. And he said, I feel like we should have a pamphlet that goes to every, <laughs> welcome, <laughs> you know, w- welcome. <laughs> we, we wave <laughs> to each other on the road. <laughs> yeah. Um, we stop at the crosswalk and, You don't honk your horn because we're letting walkers cross or whatever. You know, all of these things that, you know, became that are just a way of life for us. um, I I think. And on the rivers, I know Justin sees it. Um, Yeah. There's this new set of standards that aren't, that isn't okay, you know. um, Yes. The the crowding, um, the room or lack thereof. Boats are allowing other boats, you know, um, and those people not to sound, um, there's a term for this. Um, it's an acronym. I forget what it is, but you know, when someone's making fun of someone who is saying, I've been here for a long time, you know, have you seen this acronym on Instagram? Yes, Like I hear my students say it, they say you're sounding like a (laughs) NIMBY or whatever. I don't even know what it is, but like. I grew into these rivers and I had good mentors who said, if there's a boat downstream from you and you'd like to pass them, you row 500 yards, a half mile in front of them. And then you start fishing. You don't row 50 or even five as happened to me this, this summer. And I remember saying something to these, these young guys that were in the boat. I said, no, you can't start fishing there. And, um, they turned around really sweet and naively, they were just dumbfounded. They said, but we're in front of you now. <laughs> and, and I said, well, do you want me to just row in front of you and then start fishing five? Years? I mean, this would be kind of a silly day, wouldn't it? It would be absolutely backwards. And, and they, they hightailed it and, and got the picture.
2: Uh, you know, it's funny though, talking about guides and fishing stories, uh, you talk about the file cabinets
3: Oh yeah! So can the I bees, tell you? Yes. Bees, yeah. So can
2: I tell you this? This has gone. We've heard this story. Another guy told us, and I don't know if he's taking it away, but I was like, Justin. Um, so what he said, he had a client, which I think he said a guide told him this that there was those beehives, yes. which someone said, "What are up with all these file cabinets?" <laughs> and now the story is that's where they the the guide had said that's where they hide Nixon's um, secret documents. Oh
3: my God. So now
2: your story is like telephone. Like I I wanted to say that that rumor is still going, but it's just building. It's building to what it is. I love
3: those stories. I mean, (laughs) um, there's a, there's actually a lot, I think in this book, a lot of these, the chapters are shaped on the the archetypes of folk tales, you know? Um, And, um, I love, I think I say in the notes, like, due to my fondness for folktales and campfire talk, you know, there are some moments that I've rendered, um, in the way that I was told them at that time, not after they'd been fact checked. You know, there, there's a story of, um, um, Oh there's a story of that that boy being found up in 9 Mile Creek. Remember he goes lost? Yes, yeah, right that's before Lucas is, yes. bo- is born. And um that about, story yeah. um the fact checker came to me and said, "You know, um he wasn't alone when he found the boy. He he had brought a buddy with him or whatever." And I I thought to myself, the way I'd been told the story and the way that I ingested the story and the way that that story shaped me was that the, the man who went and found the boy had been alone. Yeah. And, um, I thought that's the way I'm going to leave it. And I made a note in the book that says, you know, if you're, um, if you're, if you're scoring at home, this guy (laughs) was alone, but the way I had originally been told it was, um, and then the, you know, the book is told in present tense. So understanding, um, the way that story shaped me. Also, you know, Mary is essentially alone when she's delivering her, our first child. Uh, I mean, the nurse is there, the midwife's there, yeah. I'm there, but she's alone. Like that's a, a completely solitary sacrosanct endeavor. And so um, I wanted that parallel to kind of um, exist between the solo hunter who goes out and finds this boy who's been lost. And then, um Mary being uh you know she's out there she's not a hunter, but she's, I know. she's bringing back the
2: you did it so Bringing well. back the boys. you so. brought you you touched like Mary and like the way that you like interpreted her feelings, I thought was so well said. I was like, wow, and I also like back on what you were saying, I do like at the very end of your notes, like these are my words based on journals don't don't take it like. Oh yeah, I mean liar, cre-
3: right? No, <laughs> yeah, creative nonfiction. I think is um is thankfully a, a pretty ambiguous term, right? We're we're working with with fact, with um experience, uh, with reportage, in hopes of shaping an emotional truth. You know, um and that's um. Yeah, I had fun with the fact checker on this one. <laughs> and there was some. I loved there it. There was some back and
2: forth <laughs> for sure. I'm be, I feel like I have to. Just, I should say that also on my podcast. Like these are just. Just take my words. You yeah. Know, don't. don't yeah. No, we <laughs> all don't need like disclaimers. It. I mean,
3: yeah, we all need disclaimers. I, and actually, um, I talk to my students often about this. Like, um, if you if you're feeling um, blockage, right. Um, In the composition process, write a disclaimer of sorts because it's liberating to say something like, as a work of creative nonfiction, this book employs elements of memoir and reportage in search of emotional truth and story. Narrative, fictional, and chronological liberties have been taken. Uh, And suddenly, okay, I'm liberated. I no longer have to call my aunt and say you know, um, that night when you got drunk, were you drinking um, uh, Manhattans or... Um, Martinis. Martinis <laughs> when you smashed the glass over my uncle's head or
2: whatever. <laughs> um. Oh, she sounds like so much fun. Yeah, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> totally. Um, the other quote, I, even just talking with you, the other thing that I've like noticed through the book is like how great you are at remembering quotes. Like, I absolutely love it. There was one, though, that like... Because um, I think I've... I've said this numerous times because um, at my cabin, we used to have this s- somewhat of the same quote, and I'm going to say it. Let's see, where is it? I really, really liked it. Hold on. Do-do-do. Yesterday's clarity is today's stupidity. The universe has dark and light, and trust oneself to change.
3: An old Zen monk, EQ, yeah. yeah, Crazy Cloud was his name. Um, yeah. Um, You're so great with these quotes. Strangely yeah. enough, you know, um, at that moment, I, the narrator, am unable to grasp the truth of that. Right? I, it's like Luca is talking about how he used to like spiders and now he doesn't, or something like yes, that. And, yes, yes. I'm saying I wish I had that ability to say yesterday was one thing, today is another, and I'm I'm on the road, right? But I'm I'm in I'm unable to you know to do it. So um, I tried to like I try to you know those little kernels of wisdom that come through from the ancient poets or whatever um i think it's beneficial if they they're offered to the reader but it's not like the character suddenly becomes enlightened <laughs> by it and everything right, is right. okay right it's it's actually the opposite he's he's conflicted like why can't i i know this is true but i why can't i yes. ascertain it right so, Isn't that the
2: truth? Yeah. I feel like that's how I feel. Like I, I know. know it's written on there, but I just can my brain cannot possibly yes. figure that out. Yeah.
3: Yeah. The you know, there's a lot of quotes from the kids in here too. And that was the yes. fun thing about the journals was like going going back through the journals and kind of peeling them out and saying, like, Oh yeah, I do remember this. I remember this time, you know, when Molly says like um uh what does she say? When what? she's chopping up the $20 bill. Like I needed more monies, you know? Yes. Um,
2: and there was also uh, like a really good one about death. Um, I can't remember. Oh, yeah. Wasn't th- it was, I was um, like, wow. Cause Sawyer is said, yeah, kids have said something mm, like that. I had yeah. lost someone. And they have you-
3: that magic,
2: right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. And Sawyer said like mm-hmm. someone died and I, he goes, mom, they never die. Cause when you love someone, they're always in your heart. And mm-hmm. I was like,
3: <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> okay. There you go. They're yeah. totally, totally peeling back our, Um, our layers of knowledge to show a probably a more unencumbered knowledge, you know, that they have. Um, Yes. I think like, I loved what an early reviewer said of the book uh, about the, the children that speak in beguiling riddles, she said, and and then she said, and then there's the hunters that that speak uh, with like the naughtiest of Shakespeare characters or something. And um, yeah, I love that. Um, You know, pairing kind of the, like the wisdom of a 13th century monk with the wisdom of a, you know, a four-year-old or whatever.
2: And Uh, such wise words. I mean, it really, so beautiful. I mean, like I said, I can't, I can't get enough of this book. It's coming out.
1: Yes. October October
3: 11th is the pub date. October 12th, if you're in Missoula, come by Montgomery Distillery, seven o'clock. We're going to have a party, a book launch party. I'll read a tiny bit, but mostly we'll just enjoy one another's company. Um, Martha Scanlon is going to play music. Um,
2: and Will Mary uh, be there? Oh, no, Mary will <laughs> be there, yeah. She'll even <laughs> sign your book. <laughs> I need you to sign my book. I actually literally brought my pen just to oh, make sure well, that you do yes. sign my book when we get done with this. Of course, of course. Um, you know, I was just, you know, as we end this podcast, like, where do you feel metaphorically, like, where are you on the water right now? Like, where do you feel like i feel on like this journey?
3: Yeah, I feel like I'm just getting started. You know, I feel this great fortune of, I'm 46, you know, the, the Luca who gets born in this first section of the book is, is 18. Um, Molly, our middle, is 14. Lily's 12. Um, and I feel, um, more in love with this place and with Mary than ever. Um, and I feel like I'm just getting started, uh, on the work, you know, of writing. Yeah. So, um, in many ways, um, I mean, publishing a book is a great fortune. And, uh, particularly in this day and age, you know, to have, um, an amazing publisher like Milkweed who gets behind a book, um, and a great publicity team, uh, that's just a a ridiculously awesome thing to have. But I'm also thinking, I can't wait to get started on the next book as well. I really am excited about that. So, um, I
2: can't wait either. I'm like, your words are just I don't know. Thank you so much. And I'm not a writer. I am so bad at writing. I'm good at t- I'm good at talking. You are Heads a writer. A podcast. Yeah. No, I just do the video editing. You know, Justin's the writer. That's
3: a story, though. You're telling it.
2: Yeah, you know. I'm more visual than I am actually. Like, I'll I'll write an email. I'm like, Justin has. How does that sound? He's like, Well, you just used great like three times in that sentence. <laughs> I'm like, okay, that's great. Great, good, 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 good to know. Should I use good? Yeah. <laughs> He's like, no, no. So it's, it's beautiful. And I'm always so amazed in Missoula, like how we have these amazing people with these great talents. And you are so talented. And I know this book is going to touch so many people. Like, and it should, because I think everybody just needs to find just get into their inner like feelings Mm -hmm. and, um, you know, be dreamers and Mm -hmm. and when things don't feel like it's going to line up and you know, Mm -hmm. like, yeah, be part of that, that, that natural world and dream along, you know, be part of it. Go for the ride.
3: Well, I'm grateful to your attention, uh, to it and for spreading the word and, but I'm more, uh, more happy to know that you found your own story. Oh. You, in this book, so that makes me, um, that makes me, yeah. really happy, and I hope other people feel similarly.
2: Without a doubt, and Chris, it you're on, you're on Instagram.
3: I'm on Instagram, and on Dombrowski underscore yeah. Chris, I think is my.
2: And you teach Instagram. over at the university. Teach Over at
3: the U, give me a holler if you're out there. Um, I'd love to hear what you think of the book, and uh, I'm always. Um, Always accessible, very distractible.
2: So, <laughs> I love it. Well, I'm <laughs> you know. looking, I'm looking forward to all the success that I know this book is going to have, and I'm just, I'm just so proud of awesome. like everything that you're doing. Keep dreaming and keep writing. Thanks, Lauren.
1: <laughs> Thanks for having
2: me. Thank you.
0: Go to thefebruaryroom.com where you can access a complete library of our podcast and read more about our guests, their fishing stories, and favorite fly patterns. We're always looking for exceptional fly fishing yarns, and if you have one to spin, shoot us an email at info at the February, the February Room is always free, but if you feel like throwing a nickel in the pond, we appreciate any additional listener support. For companies and individuals interested in sponsorship opportunities, please contact us for our media kit. Thanks for stopping by the February Room, and we'll see you down here next week.